Matt, it's just me and you today. It is just me and you today. Hey, Marcus, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. No Justin today. Justin is in Paris with COVID. Oh, he's got COVID? Yes. Oh, I didn't Apparently. know. Yeah, you haven't spoken to him yet. In, in Paris with COVID. So we figured we would do a show with just Matt and I today. I'm glad to be here. All right. So, um, Matt, we were talking yesterday and I sent you some articles that I have been reading lately discussing various topics, um, all obviously relating to mortgages and the economy, mostly in Canada, obviously impacted by what's going on in the States. But um, so I figured what we could do is you read them all, I think. Yes. You could ask questions about them and we could just kind of have an open discussion about some of the things that are going on. Like number one that really like caught me off guard was there was an article about CIBC um, where CIBC is saying that over 20% of the people that have mortgages with them are in are, are eroding their equity. Like their payments are not covering the amount of interest that they're owed. Did you read that? I, I did see that. And I, I saw that, uh, um, like, they're, they're obviously calculating. There's a system that, like, they go into to make those decisions on when they intervene. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's a, a, there's factors in play that, like, variable rate mortgages and the amount of clients that have variable rate mortgages and how that is impacted and how quickly it's changed to make that cost uh, impact them uh, in their homes. What is that? that change, like what is that, uh, that, that ratio of, of variable rate mortgages right now in the Canadian market or at least CIBC? So in CIBC's case, out of the roughly $260 billion in mortgages that they have, close to 40% are in variable rates. Now, variable rate mortgages can have a varying payment. So when interest rates increase, the payment increases naturally. So people with that type of mortgage will see every single month that the prime rate increases, their payment increases. There's also fixed payments on variable rate mortgages. Those payments stay the same. And when interest rates increase so dramatically, the, all of the payment, and now in many cases, more than that payment is required to service just the interest on that debt. So Canadians are seeing their mortgage payment no longer cover the amount of interest that's accruing on that mortgage. And CIBC was the first bank to kind of come out in their quarterly earnings report and highlight this. And they don't think it's an issue, but it might not be an issue right now because that what they're saying is that even though these mortgages are basically accumulating more principal debt, right? If the interest isn't fully paid, then the interest is being added on to the principal of the amount of money that these people owe. So CIBC is right now saying, well, listen, it's not affecting in a material way the loan-to-value of our portfolio because of how much equity was in these properties. But eventually, if so many people, like these are big numbers, right? So CIBC is by far not the largest mortgage lender in Canada. Um, They're probably, you know, 
fourth, I would think, you know, Royal Bank, TD, uh, Bank of Montreal would all have higher uh, loan books. We can check on that. But so it, all of them across the board are going to be seeing a very similar situation where their customers' mortgage payments no longer services the amount of interest that's accruing on those mortgages, and therefore mortgage balances are steadily increasing. And what I find really strange is the banks aren't reaching out to their customers. It's kind of incumbent, and we've seen this a lot from customers. I, I was just about us. to ask you about that because, like, they, they, there's a, a thing called a trigger rate, right? Like, when the the um, interest payment the, isn't covered, I believe it was Justin actually had his rate uh, or his payment change because he had one of those fixed variable rate payment mortgages, and they hit his trigger rate, and then his payments went up. Uh, that's an idea of a bank intervention. But is there any other thing that the banks are doing? to intervene, to help people. I, we haven't seen it, right? Like, we, I think that if someone reaches out to their bank on a case-by-case basis, the bank may be able to help by extending out the amortization further or, or leaving them on a payment that doesn't service all of the interest. But it's a scary idea that interest rates have climbed so much that the banks are still kind of figuring out the strategy as to how they're going to deal with it. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about what's happening with real estate prices, but you can imagine that some, like an effect like this on the wealth of so many Canadians is going to have an impact at some point. And, you know, everyone's kind of so excited about the idea that the Bank of Canada is going to pause rates right now, but that pause just means rates are going to stay where they are and people are going to continue to be eroding the equity in their home and accumulating more and more mortgage debt into this period of time, which is a pretty scary phenomenon. So what indicators are the Fed looking at in order to make these decisions? And like, are they up to date information or is it lagging indicators? Yeah. What is it that makes them, um, you know, have... Like how, first of all, how are they, are they cautious or are they optimistic and, and what are they doing? What are they looking to feel that way? Um, it's funny you say cautious and optimistic. You know, they always say we're cautiously optimistic. <laughs> so, uh, the fed in the States is looking at, I think heavily looking at, you know, inflation through CPI numbers and, um, they got a bad reading a couple of weeks ago that has affected um, projections for how much the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to have to increase interest rates. So now people are calling for perhaps another 75 basis points in increases in the States. Canada's inflation appears to have abated. Um, and that that is what precipitated the Bank of Canada coming out and saying, we're going to pause. It's still very likely that the Bank of Canada will pause at the next meeting. but. Um, if the United States is still experiencing inflation and that one reading isn't just an kind of anomalous reading, then Canada might not be out of the woods. We may still have to increase interest rates, which is pretty scary, Um, especially for variable rate mortgage holders with with fixed payments or not fixed payments. Um, The other thing that they're tracking is employment numbers. So we keep talking about this is that 
what really needs to happen is some pain has to come into that employment market, right? We need to see unemployment increase and we need to see um, this upward pressure on wages needs to abate um, because what the fear is, is that, so right now everyone is saying things are more expensive. I need my wage to increase. And it is widely accepted that the increase in interest rates is going to drop inflation, thereby reducing kind of the trend of this ever-increasing cost of goods. But if you increase wages right now, which is what's happening, to help people deal with the increased cost of goods, then those increased cost of wages are going to feed into the economy and leave the cost of services higher. So you're going to see you know, service price inflation because of employment costs increasing. Um, so th- that's why like, when you ask, what are they looking at? They're looking at, are we seeing unemployment happen? Are we seeing this pressure on wage growth abate? And, and, and that will tell them that you know, it, their fight against inflation is working. It's almost like inflation's in two parts, right? Like the first part of inflation is the, the, the inflation of the cost of goods. And then in order to deal with the inflation and the cost of goods, wages need to increase. And when wages increase, that inflation creeps into the service sector and it's stickier. It gets hard to you increase wages for people. You can't pull those wages back. So it's that that inflation will live in the market for longer. So that's why this when you you know when you explain it like that, it really helps me to understand like why governments are always so hesitant to increase minimum wage. I've never thought of it like that at all. Right. Never thought of it like because once you, you cannot dial it back, and like that that wave will just keep on going. It'll yeah. hit everybody. Yeah, and it's also why this fight against inflation is so time sensitive. The problem is, is that the tools that we're using to fight inflation, monetary policy, increasing interest rates, are not immediate, right? Like, this is still... A, You've always said that. You've yeah. Said that. There's a lag. We talked about that specifically. We had that one chart on the show where... We, we, you said it, it hasn't even been a year since the first increase, right? Yeah. Like it's about a, about a year now, right? Yeah. So it, you've always said, give it at least 12 months. Yeah. And we're just getting there. Right. And the effects when we showed that chart. So we, I don't, if you remember, but if people that are listening or watching, we showed a chart, a few different charts, because there've been studies on this. One from the Royal Bank of Australia, the Central Bank in Australia, one from the Federal Reserve in the United States that show that the effects of increasing or decreasing interest rates are felt 12, 24, 36 months down the road. So we're dealing with something right now where we've increased rates so dramatically and many, by many metrics, the most dramatic in increases in rates because of the amount of debt that's out there, right? Remember, the more debt that's in the market, the more pronounced the impact of a rate hike is. So we're seeing now the effects kind of 12 months in of the first of these rate hikes, never mind the ones that have happened more recently. And we're going to still see the effects of these rate hikes 24 months from now. You're, you're right. They raised it throughout the whole year last year. So like 
we need 12 months from every single one of those increases, not just the first one. Right. We need 12 months from every one of them. I never thought of that either. It's, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you led with, with the, the, what the U.S. is looking at. And I mean, obviously, Canada is looking at these same numbers. But what's the difference between what the U.S. and Canada are doing? And, and like, do they agree that they're both on the same path? Or is one looking at others saying, I should have done that? This is so, uh, it's such a concerted effort between kind of all G7 nations. These central bankers all meet. They all have constant discussions about it. I think that um, the the U.S. is probably seeing some of the kind of um, leading indicators on how this is negatively impacting their economy, and they wish they could be pausing. Um, the problem is, is that most recent inflation reading is going to be difficult to contend with. And we've talked about this before, too. The Federal Reserve in the United States lost a lot of credibility. So did the Bank of Canada. Um, in saying that inflation was transitory, right? Like they, we have all the numbers, we have all the leading numbers. Don't worry, inflation is transitory. Rates are going to stay low for a really long time. That was the message that we were receiving right up until we started getting hit with these successive rate increases. And now the Federal Reserve is saying to us, we are going to do whatever it takes to fight inflation, read, increase interest rates until we pound the consumer into oblivion. And that is a pretty scary idea when we already don't know what the impact of those rates are going to be. We're not just, you know, I'm not a financial expert at all. I'm, I'm a mortgage agent. Let's bring this back to like mortgages. How is this affecting the housing market in Canada, in the, in the US? I mean, everybody talked about a housing crash. Um, obviously prices have come down, but what's on the horizon for everything? I don't know. It's so like this today, uh, we saw a reading come out that housing or prices of homes are up month over month in Canada. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. By nothing by 1%, right? So pretty much flat, but still stabilized. And I think that, um, I think that although there is some demand that's kind of been waiting and is creeping into the market, because you think about it, like the economy, the real estate transactions have come to, you know, a bit of a standstill in comparison to where we were pre, you know, interest rate hikes. So, but, but I still believe that this has a, a ways to go, right? Like we, it's almost as if like, the consumer is just starting to figure this out now. Um, and the markets have been overly optimistic about the impact of all of these rate hikes. And we see it like it, everyone, you know, like it, the markets aren't perfect, right? Like they are a factor of emotion and, you know, the, of people that are buying and selling at that time and the information that they have. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks, just with this bad in, this inflation number out of the States led to like, we're, we're at the highest level ever now for five-year fixed rate mortgages, right? Yeah. We saw a drop because it looked like inflation had abated. Uh, and then this reading came out of the United States and it said, well, no, we got another hot number. 
And now bond yields creeped up again. And when bond yields creep up, it means that the price of the bond has reduced. So the yield has increased. And when the yield on a bond, the bonds increase, that means that the mortgage rates increase. Um, so I don't like, while we're in this limbo, we're definitely not going to see rates drop, right? So even if all things remain the same, we've got a problem because people aren't paying their mortgages, right? The mortgages are not in arrears. That's not what we're saying. But the amount of interest that is owed on them isn't being paid. Yeah. They're literally just paying for the interest on the debt. Yeah. I, like, yeah. There was this... Um, and, and if the value of that asset goes down when they're only paying the interest on it, that then it becomes a problem. Or not even paying the interest on it, right? Yeah. So they're not even paying the interest on it, right? Like the interest amount is growing even though they're making the same monthly payment that they were making before. And then if more and more of those consumers decide, you know what, I got to get rid of this asset, I got to get rid of this piece of real estate, and more of that goes into the market, then you see the price of it drop. Fortunately, and I don't know how, right now we have not seen those prices drop, right? Like those, they look to have stabilized right now, at least in the GTA from what we've seen, the numbers that we've seen. And then anecdotally, you hear realtors say that like there's multiple offer situations happening again. People are returning to the market, which is great. You know, then there's the other issue is that like the whole idea, everyone got excited that prices are going to drop and then home homes are going to become more affordable. Yeah, I didn't but, see that ever happen. But they're not more affordable. No. We the did the math on it. We right. did the math on it a couple of weeks ago. Right. The cost of a home has increased significantly because of how much interest rates have increased. So there's, there's a few variables that you have to consider. One variable that's really important is time. And we don't know how much longer rates are going to stay where they are for because it's, it's all based upon these inflation numbers. So although the Bank of Canada has come out and told us they're on a pause, and that sounds great, what happens if we get see another hot inflation number? Or what happens, you know, hopefully this last kind of uptick in inflation in the United States is anomalous. Um, but like, hopefully, like, that doesn't sound like a great way to make a decision. So let me ask you, we, we did the math on this a few weeks ago where we talked about uh, a 3% increase over uh, five years means that we need a 15% decrease on the price of the home for it to kind of level out. Um, I, I can reference it up. In the yeah, corner. yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we did the, the, that episode and we did the math. I mean, if we, we, talk, we just talked about the consumer getting more educated. If you're a smart consumer, if you have money in the bank and you're thinking about making a move and you've done that math, doesn't it make sense? Like, is that what's making the, the, are those the buyers in the market right now? Is that why we're not seeing this big dip is because people are saying, Hey, prices have come down 20% and I can actually afford these payments. Now is the time for me to make this move. Or are people still on the sidelines waiting to make that move? Do people like, at, at what point do people start to enter into this market? Because I, I mean, if you were in March or April, June 2020, and you locked into a five-year fixed, it seemed like you made a great decision then. But if you bought in the, you know, uh, you know, a year ago in a, va- a variable rate market, uh, it, and your assets gone down, it seems like 
the timeline is very short to be able to make a move. Um, and the spread is getting smaller and smaller. So when do you jump in and capitalize? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like right now with some of the information that we're seeing, like, I mean, this report from CIBC, I don't know how they painted it so rosy, right? Like they did. They, they came did. out and they were like, listen, it's just this very small percentage of our book that we see an issue with. But if you look, if you dive into those numbers, 20% of their book, so $50 billion, which you can read as 20% of everyone that's got a mortgage in Canada, is not covering the amount of interest. Or like the way they put it is, they said 35 years or more on their amortization period. But, oh, wow. but 35 years or more could also mean like a hundred years could mean, it could mean that, you know, we don't, how, how do you, how many years is it if it's, uh, if the amount of interest is adding to the principal, right? Like that's included in that 35 plus segment of their report. Um, what percentage is that? That's what I, that's what be interesting to find out. You look at everything, right? Like mortgage delinquencies are not up. They haven't been affected. Credit delinquencies have started, right? Credit delinquencies are up across the board right now. Um, and those are a precursor to mortgage delinquencies. Um, I think that the Bank of Canada, I think that the central banks everywhere are definitely aware of the, of the pain that they are causing. I think that they want to be causing that pain. I, I just think it might not be enough yet. And then by the time that it is enough, is it going to be too much? That's uh, like, uh, when do you buy a house now? I don't know. So, I mean, let's imagine you do have capital. You're not, you know, you are on the sidelines. Uh, you know, what, where's a good place to park your money right now? What do you do with it? So there's some, like, there's some, there's still some great opportunities, I think, in like, if you can get, uh, into the real estate market in something distressed, like you're, we're seeing these opportunities come up right now. Um, but in these periods of time, it's like, it's sometimes it's best to sit on the sidelines, right? Like it doesn't sound like a great solution, but like, like one of those articles references stagflation, right? Yeah. We've, sp we spoke about that. I don't know if you remember this. I'd love it if you could pull up a clip from that episode, but this is like, pre-interest rate hikes, I came in, yes. I had read something and I came in and I was like, you know what I'm worried about today? I'm worried about stagflation. I think it was like mid-2021. Yeah. And I was like, and you guys were like, well, what's stagflation? And we went through it. So like stagflation is the combination of two words, stagnation and inflation. Stagnation just means like, what's stagnant water, right? Stagnation just means the economy is not moving. It is at a standstill. It's typically characterized by low or negative growth. It is, you know, rising unemployment, stagnant, right? And inflation, we speak about every single time we do one of these shows. Inflation is that the costs of goods and services are increasing. So now, like, 
imagine. And it's really starting to feel like that right now, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Right? It's starting to feel like like the economy's kind of like gummed up, like nothing's really happening. Um, and you know, we we still haven't seen that unemployment that but but that, by the way, that's what the central bankers are trying to incite. So you would think at some point that will come along. That would be the characterization of stagnation. And then the inflation we know is here, right? Yeah. So let me ask you, like, you know, you're right. Like, I never even heard of the term stagflation before two years ago. Now it's everywhere in the buzz. But I mean, we're close to the same age, so I don't remember the 70s, but there was a 70s stagflation as well. Uh, I do remember 2008 and the debt crisis. It seems like both of these things are here together now. There's a debt crisis. There's high interest rates. There's depreciation assets. But then there's also the inflation, stagflation aspect of things where like, it just seems like a, a, a melting pot of like bad shit on the horizon. You know who you sound like right now? <laughs> you? <laughs> no, no, no. You sound like the, the one article... Um, that I sent you was Nuriel Rubini. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who they call Dr. Doom. He's like a PhD economist. He, you know, he, he, they say that he called the housing collapse, that 08 crisis in the States. Um, anyways, he came out, he's been, you know, talking about this for some time now, but his concern, um, is that the, all of those factors, are leading to a perfect storm for the markets, right? We talk about this to our um, mortgage fund investors all the time. Like right now, the S&P is at 4,000 still. Yeah, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Right? You said it should be nowhere near like 36, 38. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's crazy to me that the, the markets haven't priced in that earnings so like the the forecast for earnings of those companies within the S&P has dropped significantly what hasn't come off is their price per share like the market capitalization of those companies hasn't been affected by the significant degrading of what they are proposing to be able to make in the future uh so that should come off so all of the like there are some economists that I follow, right? Like Morgan Stanley has a guy named Marco Kalanovic. Uh, Goldman Sachs has a guy named Jan Hatsius. Um, Nuriel Rabini is a little bit more uh, kind of outlier. Like he is, there are some guys that are out there that are just always like doom and gloom. Mar that guy, Marco Kalanovic that I talked about from uh, JP Morgan, he is like named number one economist for the last 15 years. Um, and he was bullish on the market heading into this period. Like in 2022, he had kind of the highest price target for the S&P. He's changed course now. He is saying that what, like, and these guys, like a really good economist like this, that puts them set, like there's so few, there's so few pundits that will go out there and put themselves out there with a prediction because it's so difficult. There's so many different things influencing it. So what he, what he'll come out, he come out and said is he said, basically, listen, I was expecting a rosier 2023, but I can no longer say that 
because the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates by so much, the impact on the economy needs to be felt. It's going to be felt in the earnings per shares of these companies. At a certain point, the market will realize that they will pull back on investment. Like the market capitalization of these companies will be reduced. And only at that point, which he's saying is like mid 2023, will the Fed pivot? Will the Fed start decreasing interest rates? Right? The Fed. And the Fed is saying, no, that's not the case. We don't care. We don't care what the S&P is at. We're not looking at the market. But I, like these, a lot of these economists are saying at some point, the Fed will break this fortitude of increasing interest rates. So I've got to ask you, like, when they make statements like that, is it not the same thing as like Elon Musk saying, buy Doge? Like, if they make a press statement and there's bags of money on the sidelines, wouldn't these people try to capitalize it? Like, is there not a reason for them to lie to us? <sighs> You're such a skeptic. <laughs> I'm just asking. Yeah. Right? Um, I Listen, I think that like, although for sure there's a reason for, you know, the economist at, you know, one of America's largest banks to kind of push forward an agenda that suits that bank, these, these economists are paid to look at the data and to make assessments. And they themselves lose a lot of credibility should they just kind of, you know, go out there and be the microphone for the business. That's exactly. more the job of the CEO. And within JP Morgan, like the JP Morgan CEO, a guy named Jamie Dimon, has himself been calling for a recession based on the actions of the Federal Reserve. I think he also said not to buy Bitcoin at 2000. So I don't know about JP. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that one is, um, is a little more against his role as the CEO of that bank. Yeah. Yeah. But their job is to advise their customers um, as to what they see on the horizon. They do have a ton of access to information and data. Um, and what kind of these players are telling us is that it's not done yet. It just seems as though this thing that we're waiting for keeps getting pushed out. And I think what everyone's wondering is like, why is it getting pushed out? Like, why does it keep getting pushed out? Why are, why are the high rates still here? Well, that's what I mean. Like if, you know, if I had money and I hear all these economists talking about like the S&P shouldn't be at 4,000, it should be at 36, I'm going to short the market. But if my bags are now in shorts, you know, like typically like whales would manipulate the market, they say, and push my short out and that's where they would capitalize, but the market can't go up, right? And if there's a bunch of people ready to short the market, the market can't go down because then they're going to capitalize. So it's kind of like, could there be so much pressure on shorts that that's why it, it hasn't moved? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, like, uh, some of the biggest, brightest investors were buying Tesla in December. I read an article that, like, you know, Jim Simons, who runs uh, Renaissance Technologies, which is, like, known to be the preeminent hedge fund, you know, in the world, like unexplainable returns for, 
I don't know, 20, 30 years, um, go down a rabbit hole about Jim Simons. Do you know who that is? No, I don't. Jim Simons is a like mathematician and physicist with awards for work that he's done in those fields that started a hedge fund. Oh, wow. And the, their, their kind of flagship fund within this Renaissance group of companies is called Renaissance Medallion. You can only invest in it if you work at Renaissance. And it, like, the returns are unexplainable, right? Like, um, the, the, like, it's like Madoff returns, but it's, it's just someone who was like, he was the original kind of quant, the original user of algorithms to make calls on the stock market. And although I'm sure he's got a short bias, I, I don't know, um, but he does have kind of holdings in companies that like Tesla, he, you know, he increased his stake in Tesla in December when Tesla was, had pressure on it. Made a whole boatload of money as Tesla ran up. I wonder if he sold it or not. But Tesla is a <clears throat> kind of, it's a prototypical NASDAQ company, which should be seeing pain in an environment where interest rates are increasing, right? Um, there are these guys, though, like now, now you got me on this trade of thought. There's these yeah. guys like Jim Simons, There's another guy named D.E. Shaw, both you know, very, very successful hedge fund managers that come from a background of mathematics and physics um, that have won awards in those fields and um, both of whom very, very successful. And it's like you start reading about these guys and you realize like there are some people out there that are really on top of this market. So like, you know, I agree. If, if, if any of our watchers, I mean, are viewers probably seen it, but the big short really goes down like the 2008 financial crisis and how the, a lot of these hedge funds tried to capitalize on it. And what was his name? The guy that called the, 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 the big short, he called it. I mean, so like everybody called Michael, big, like, Michael, whatever, Michael Burry. Yeah. yeah he's, so everybody called the big short, right? Like Nuriel Rabini called it. Michael Burry called it. Um, John Paulson called it like at the end, the thing about shorting the market is it can get really expensive and you could get run over. That's what right? I mean. Like if all these guys are in shorts right now, then like, and it just stays stagnant. Like they're also like they pay while it just sits there. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, how long does it stay stagnant for, for the whales to capitalize? And Maybe then, that's what's going on. Right. Like, listen, if you are shorting the market for a, like if you're continually shorting the market and the market continually continues to go sideways, your shorts get shorter. By the end of it, you're just sitting there with a pair of uh, Daisy Dukes on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, like it, everyone is saying the market has to go down. The market is not going down. We talk about it with our, with our MIC investors, right? Like we're in a period of time right now where this capital is still kind of sitting in equities and some of it is start you were seeing articles about it some of it's migrating into the credit markets because the returns in the credit markets are so good like look at our fund the funds at you know, almost 9% right now going to double digits this year yeah it was my birthday over the weekend i hung out with my father and he was we were talking about like 
uh, real estate and Bitcoin. And he was like, the Mick, he's like, it's all it does is just give me back money. Like, I don't have to worry. And it hasn't, like, there isn't a day where we lose a dollar. Like, if you're holding Bitcoin or something like that, or worried about real estate prices. Um, and, and it was like really reassuring like it, that for me, you know, in my forties to suggest that this thing to my dad and for my dad and me to hang out and go, you know what? Like, I feel really good about it. And it felt made me feel really good about it. You know? Yeah. Listen, we, uh, we talk about it all the time, right? Because our investors are nervous about the market. They've got money in, um, mutual funds or whatever the stock market in general index funds. And this RSP season, we saw a lot of people taking money out of mutual funds uh, through their RSPs and then putting them in. The, That's literally the bank, what right? my, my family did. My, my, my stepmom, my father, my sister, everybody moved their stuff over. Yeah. But these people call and ask before they make that move, right? Like, you know, let's say someone's got $50,000. They're taking it out of a mutual fund that has been underperforming because if the market moves sideways, there's the other thing. If the market just moves sideways, the only people that are making money are the people that are managing the mutual funds or managing the money. They're still going to take their return. So if, the mar- if your mutual fund returned 3% because the market moved 3%, you're going to lose 2 or 3%, 4 sometimes 5% to management fees. So you're going to see a negative return. If the market moves down, and you are directly correlated to that market, then you're going to see the, you're going to see the performance of your fund be equal to that plus the management fees. So these people taking money out of these mutual funds, out of the market, putting into the mix, they still ask the question like, "Well, what's to say this couldn't happen with the mix?" Well, because of the way the mix invests, like we are invested in real estate, but we're invested in a borrower who has real estate. And yeah, that's another thing. We're not investing in the real estate. We're investing in the borrower. Like the borrower is taking the money and then using it on their property or for whatever reason, but they're they're using their asset to access capital. Right. I mean, it's a completely different thing. I try to explain this to my family and my friends and my friends didn't really get it. It took my dad a little bit, but once my dad understood it, he was like, oh, and like it kind of just triggered something, right? Yeah, listen, we find good borrowers with equity in their real estate and then we help them by giving them that capital and finding a solution for how they're going to pay that capital back. So in a downturn, a downturn like this means there's less capital available to those borrowers, which unfortunately for the borrower means that the money costs more. Everyone is seeing that across the board right now. Fortunately for the investor, it means that we can return more for the investor. And the risk hasn't changed because we're still lending to the same conservative levels that we were lending beforehand. I saw, I think we're at 52% loan to value right now. Right. And those are like assessed based on the value of the real estate that we're lending on at the time that we're lending it. And we're reassessing it on a monthly basis. So we aren't as affected by these changes because the nature of mortgages are mortgages renew or mortgages pay out, but they have a maturity date. And on the maturity date, the pricing, the loan amount, the loan to value, all those things are reassessed. So if you're investing in a, in a mortgage fund, a well-managed mortgage fund, you it's very difficult to lose the principal amount that you've invested. You need to see a 
cataclysmic drop in real estate prices. And then you need to see the failure of all of those borrowers, right? Like the S&P is at 4,000. Everyone is saying the S&P should be at 3,500. I mean, everybody, like, you know, a lot of the economists and investors that I follow, I guess. Um, And it's out there. It's in the, in the media constantly. So that, that drop is a, you know, 12, 13, 14% drop in the value of that basket of equities, the value of those companies. It would be so severe. Like we would, we would need to see, you know, real estate prices drop by half to have some type of impact like that. Uh, half from where they are now. Yes. Yeah. 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 And like the, what it would take for that to happen. And also within a really short period of time, um, which is why I feel confident we're having my money in the fund. Right. Marcus, I feel a lot smarter after having this conversation. (laughs) I mean, you're always smart. (laughs) Thank you. But I mean, there's a, there was a lot of questions where like, um, I don't know. I just feel like there's a clearer picture to how everything is working right now. And whether I feel optimistic or skeptical about it, I mean, uh, I, I'm really kind of bipartisan. I, get, I just want to kind of see it play out. I mean, I, I feel pretty safe working here at Connect and and uh, uh, I feel pretty safe living in the city of Toronto, right downtown. But you can see like there are behaviors that I see in the city happening, changing, like living right down, down on Queen Street. There's not a lot of people out through the week anymore. But there's a lot of people out for Friday date nights. Um, and really, I, yeah, that, that that you try to get a re, try to walk into a restaurant um, on a Friday or Saturday, impossible. But through the week, it's it's dead. It's through the week. It's right. It's dead right now. But where you know where things were going really good through you know when everybody was getting government money, um, you can go in and on Friday Saturday night get a table no problem. But it was also busy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was busy every night of the week, um, which I, I see a change. Whereas everybody's kind of like, oh, if I can't go out Tuesday, Wednesday, I have to budget for my Friday date night. Right. And everybody kind of seems to be like getting their babysitter and going out for that Friday date night. But uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, like I said, I, we're, we're to, I'm not a financial guy. I'm, I'm a you know, guy living in the city. I just... Now I have a better picture, but I don't know what's going to happen. I sure don't. That makes two of us. <laughs> it's so it's so dependent on what we're going to see occur with rates. Um, I, I think that at some point, sooner than what we're being told, rates have to come back down. Um, and I think that part of it, I've said this before, I think that part of this, this, scary picture that's being painted for our future of interest rates are going to stay here and we're going to combat inflation. It's going to be our number one priority. Part of it is a tool to ensure that we can fight inflation faster, right? Because if you come out and say, yeah, interest rates are super high and we're causing pain, but don't worry, it's going to all be over real soon, then then everyone will kind of hold on as long as they can. And I think that's still happening, right? I think it's inherent in people to hold on as long as they can. Um, And I think that um, 
it's unfortunate, but like that's how this plays out, right? Like this plays out by an addition. Like we're going to see another leg down. You know, I, 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 there's no way that without seeing the impact, like it's not like monetary policy and its effect on the economy isn't changing magically because this time around is different, right? There, that lag in monetary policy's effect has has been there. It's been studied since the beginning of monetary policy. You're right. We're not doing anything new here. Yeah. The only thing that's new is the experiment, the level of experimentation that we're doing. Like the amount of experimentation we did when we increased the monetary supply over the last, you know, 12 years, more specifically over the COVID period. But even prior to that, we were just pushing so much monetary supply into the marketplace. We left interest rates very, very low for very, very long. And we kept adding and adding more capital to the marketplace. Some people were doing, were writing papers on this being the new normal of how economies could behave, right? Because central banks could handle and governments could handle this much debt. Well, something's going to break. And I mean, like, just think of like, you can pull threads everywhere in this economy. Like we're talking about the consumer, right? We're talking about someone that has a mortgage right now. What about the government? Like the amount of money that the Canadian government, any government, now has to allocate towards just servicing their debts has increased by about the same amount as the guy at CIBC who's got a variable rate mortgage with a fixed payment has increased. So if the person with a variable rate mortgage with a fixed payment that's seeing their equity arose, erode has to change what they're spending money on, change when they're going out for dinner, change, like you say, like, you know, save for date night, but screw everything else. How's the government going to respond? Well, the government's going to respond by scaling back what it's spending. Because, well, I mean, we know how they're going to respond first. They're going to increase taxes, right? To increase the amount of money that they have so that they can continue to pay for the social welfare programs, for education, for healthcare. Like, if it doesn't pay for those things, things break. But the amount of wallet that they have to pay for those things is decreasing because the amount that it costs to service the debt is increasing. Yeah, I saw like a report on that. Like, if America needed, like, at its current interest rate levels, they would run out of capital by like 2050 or something like that. So, like, you can't come out, you, you have to change the interest rate sooner than later because of what's going to happen long-term for governments and corporations and everybody that runs everything. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's weird, and I, I don't think we've seen anyone, like, no, it hasn't come up across my radar in an article, um, but the 10-year yield, I don't know if you can pull that up, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has increased quite steadily. Um, initially, we looked at kind of, so you look at the relationship between the two-year yield and the five-year yield and the 10-year yield to tell you what the bond market, or yeah, to, to infer what the bond market is telling us about where the economy is going, right? 
So if the two-year yield is much higher than the five-year yield and the 10-year yield, it's telling you that although interest rates are super high right now, we will go into an economic contraction, read recession, and as a result, we'll have to decrease interest rates at some point between that two and that five-year mark. So that decrease, the reason why the decrease happens, why there's a difference between the yield on a two-year and the yield on a five-year is because there's an anticipation that we're going to be in a recession. But those five-year rates and those 10-year rates have been increasing steadily. Those yields have been increasing steadily. And I don't think that it, I don't think that what the yield, like we can't, we can no longer simply infer from the yield that there won't be a recession. I think what we're inferring is that even though there may be a recession, what we're pricing into those yields is the fortitude of these central bankers to keep interest rates higher. And that's kind of scary too, at least to speak to this stagflation conversation that we started with. So, I mean, is this, is this going to be the new normal? Because they, I mean, if, if the two year goes and then the five years, it seems like there's going to be something that happens in a two year period, but then stay, it goes back to where we are in five. So is this the new normal? I, you know, it's so strange. Things are changing so quickly, right? Like, so with every inflation reading that we're getting, the market is responding. Um, and the market is always optimistic. So the market, all like the stock market specifically, is, is kind of always behaves with optimism. Um, the bond market is kind of typically supposed to be a little more logical. The stock market is telling us there's no problem, <laughs> right? The stock market is saying like, everything's going to be fine. Um, the bond market after the most recent, um, inflation reading is telling us rates are going to be longer and higher for longer than anticipated. Um, I think that at a certain point, we've got to marry those two. Um, and I think that psychologically, a significant drop in the price of equities, which everyone's looking at, like, um, will have a negative impact on the general economy, which already the sentiment is starting to become far more negative than it was. Like, if you think about it, like six months ago, we were still in the middle of this shitty situation and you walked, you walked and spoke to people and like nobody really, everyone was like, oh yeah, that's weird. Interest rates are going up. Now it is definitely becoming a hotter topic of conversation. I think six months from now, it'll be even hotter. And depending on like we have to see how it plays out, right? Like depending on the damage that is inflicted on the economy, that will be, that will tell us when interest rates will start coming off. And the bond market right now, with the amount of movement that we're seeing in it, um, like this most recent run up in all of the yields is telling us that the bond market sees rates being higher for longer. Um, if you ask the bond market the same question a month ago, um, bond market looked different. A month before that, it looked like it did now. 
You want to pull up one of those yield charts through an act of wizardry, Matt. Good job. So, th- like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, the the variance between, you know, kind of end of January, where we were at sub three and a half, to now, where we're at 425. This is the two-year um, yield in Canada. 75 basis points, more than 75 basis points added on to that yield. And then the same thing across the board, right? Like, you're seeing... You know, a point added on to the five year and kind of most concerning is that 10 year. Like that 10 year went from being two and a quarter to three and a half, another 75 basis point move in the 10 year rate. Um, so it's easy for us to say like when the 10 year is really low, like these in inverted yields, um, you know, because naturally speaking, you would expect that the two year yield is lower than the 10 year yield, uh, which isn't the case here. They're all, um, you know, like they get progressively lower, right? The yields are getting progressively lower as you go, but that 75 basis point increase being translated transferred all the way through means that even though there's going to be a recession, we're still going to leave rates high. And that, I mean, you got, we got to hope that these yields come down a little bit um, or else maybe the depth of the recession um, could be worse. Let me ask you, Marcus, what, what do you think is like, I'm not a conspiracy. Well, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but a bit. You're a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Uh, I so try I like not to be. I'm a bit of a realist, but we're, like, if you go on places like social media and like YouTube, you see some doom and gloom scenarios, and the world is burning, and you know, the Illuminati and Putin and all these other things. What do you think's like the worst that could happen? I worry about uh, more war. Yeah, me too. Um, like, what are the things that I worry about? I worry that uh, that that we're less concerned with what could come out of Eastern Europe right now than we should be. That, like, the actions that we're taking there, we, like, you know, whatever, NATO, G7, United States, that we're taking there could have repercussions just like these interest rates, right? Um, that we're not fully appreciating and maybe we don't fully appreciate it because we're very focused on the, the return that we can get now. Like I think that like societally, whether it's the decision to go and create war or the decision to give people money or the decision to fight inflation. All these decisions are being made from our back foot and they're all being made to appease a populace so that the government can get reelected, right? So that the people can stay in power so that the power doesn't have to change. But the gambles that they are taking to stay in power, it feels like a, like how many times like can you play poker and go all in until someone calls your bluff? Right? That poker player 
can play at a new table one time, but you can't play every week. So we're going all in all the time, right? Like we're going all in on writing checks for people. We're going all in on fighting inflation. We're going all in on a war. It's a lot of bluffs to be making simultaneously. It's a lot of big bets to be making all at once. And the reason why those bets are being made is because they are on that kind of, they're, they're being, they're being done to maintain, to hold on to power. And they're not necessarily being made for the long-term health of society. So pick one. But like, and I, I, the other thing is you never know what the main problem is going to be until after it blows up, right? Problem could be the way we're treating China. Problem could be what comes out of Russia and the Ukraine. What am I worried about? I don't know. I'm worried about all kinds of things. Right now, I'm worried about this snowstorm that's coming. <laughs> this, like, once in 30 year snowstorm that's coming. And I'm worried about getting out of here. <laughs> it's been a great chat, Marcus. I've enjoyed our conversation today. And let's do it again soon. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>